0: Thank you for leading us in song. One of my favorites, Come Thou Fount. Good evening. Thanks for coming here tonight on Thursday. I invite you to join me in Proverbs 5. We'll cover the whole chapter and that'll conclude uh, our teaching series this week in the book of Proverbs, hopefully setting us all up to read the rest of Proverbs and to better understand wisdom literature. And to apply it, to put God's word skillfully into practice in every situation in our practical lives. Um, Proverbs 5. Uh, And forgive me if I get a bit excited about this one. I love this whole chapter and get to hang out in it. I believe the message is of utmost importance to each one of us, single, married, um, especially in our culture, which is uh, really wanting to go as far away from God's good design. And so we want to sing this song loud uh, and, and encourage our kids and our grandkids and our friends to follow God's ways. Um, Proverbs five and much of Proverbs six and all of Proverbs seven are on this topic that we cover tonight. It is a lengthy teaching from a father to his son about the wisdom of being faithful to your spouse in marriage and the folly of sex outside of the covenant of marriage, Um, I hope you know if you if you've read Scripture, you see that that God talks a lot about romance. Um, God is the creator of love and romance. Um, and romance is a good thing. I want to say this, though, it's not the only thing. Sometimes in our Christian culture, we can make marriage and and love uh, the, the most important thing. Um, and and sometimes we exalt it maybe too much. We know that in the Scripture, God affirms singleness on the same level as He does marriage. See First Corinthians seven. Um, it, it, marriage is not like varsity and singleness is not JV. I kind of felt like that, that like when I get married, then I'm like fully a man, then I'm ready to serve, but until then I'm just kind of hanging around until I get married or find someone to marry. Um, and I think I missed out on the benefits of singleness and to use my singleness as a gift to uh, glorify God and take advantage of the advantages of singleness. If I could speak that back to me. Um, Jesus, who modeled for us what it means to be truly human, was single. Jesus never married. And all of us, young and old, will navigate seasons of singleness, and we will thrive in them as well. So singleness is not a curse. It is referred to as a gift. On the same token, as we read scripture, we confess that marriage is good. It is a good idea and a good gift, and God is the creator of romance. This might sound shocking, but Adam and Eve did not discover sex while God wasn't looking, right? It it wasn't something they said, look what we found. No, God actually created this and gave this to them. It was his idea. It is God's gift and idea to give a woman and a man together that they would get to enjoy one another. And God is pleased by that. And God has a lot to say about romance and love uh, in His word. So my prayer is today, young and old, all of us, single and married, would look to Proverbs five that we might champion marriage as God intended, champion it in our own lives, and champion it in the lives of our friends and our neighborhood and our church as well. And that we um, it would, uh, and that every Christian. Uh, including me and you and all of us here, that we would seek to steward our sexuality in ways that honor God. All of our desires, everything that we would seek to steward them in a way that honors God according to his word. Um, you, th- it's no secret that there's a lot of songs about love and romance. They dominate our music. Uh, does anybody know what this picture is? Did anyone own one of these in your life? Any of our young people any, ever own or play music from one of these, a cassette tape? Uh, my wife and I, Annette, when we were just beginning to date, um, my birthday, it was one of those awkward things. We just started to kind of hang out. In fact, um, I asked her out on one of our like, a first official like, dates was on my birthday. So she had to kind of get me a gift because it was my birthday, which is really awkward because we're not really dating yet. What do you do? She made me a mixtape. You guys remember mixtapes, you know? Maybe now you guys make playlists. Do you guys make playlists for each other and give each other? That's great. We used to have to put them on cassette tape, you know, and play them. And she gave me this uh, mixtape of love songs. And uh, what a great gift. Um, But we hear about love everywhere. Our movies, our magazines, our songs, our, our social media, everything is about love and romance because it's exciting. But God sings the first song about love and sex, and God sings the best song about love and sex. So I think we need to listen to his song. We need to put his song on our playlist or on our cassettes first and hit repeat that that we understand God's good plan. Here it is in a quick summary. We looked at Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates man and woman and, and it was not good that man was alone. We read that in Genesis. So God makes for him a helper. And before we get too offended at that word helper, that is a very honoring word. The Holy Spirit is called our helper. And and that word is is from um, that same root. And so, um, but notice this, when God made a companion for Adam, he didn't clone Adam. He could have very much just cloned Adam, but he didn't. He took from his own body, from his side, from his rib, and God created woman. Um, of equal substance, of equal value, of equal significance, but not the same. Different and uniquely different. And then what does, so God is actually the one who differentiated the sexes, male and female, calls it good. And then what does God do? He brings the female, the woman, back to the man. And he breaks out in poem and he says, whoa, man calls her woe man. And he's just like, like flabbergasted. He's like, you're flesh of my flesh, but you're different. And he brings them together. And that's where we read that they are brought together in marriage. They are united and they become one flesh and, and, and they were naked and without shame is what we read. And this is what I find interesting. And so Um, that that they were once together, man and woman were together, but God differentiated the sexes, brings them back again in marriage. And so while we call marriage a union, I think it's good to say we're united. More specifically, John Stott said this, marriage is a reunion. It's a reunion again because man and woman were together. And every time we we celebrate a marriage, a man and woman are reunited again. And now they form this unique team. Not because they're exactly the same, but because of their differences, they come together. And we rejoice in that. That is God's good song. And therefore, that's why I believe it is important that God's creative intent is that marriage does belong. It's not just two living people. It is a man and a woman who come together under the covenant of of marriage before God and others and declare their love and devotion and faithfulness to each other for life. That is God's good plan. So we're going to read, though, Proverbs 5, and we're going to hear more about that, and we're going to hear about things that are outside of God's good intent. Um, So would you pray this with me, if, if you are so bold, to pray this out loud? Father, teach us from your word tonight. Amen. So Proverbs 5, again, a father speaking to his son. Um, and he says in verse 1 and 2, we've heard this, these opening words quite a bit in different forms. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. That you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. The father is saying, listen up, son. <laughs> my instruction tonight, my instruction to you today will save your life if you will listen to it. Verse 3 through 6. He says, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, or to the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Interesting. She does not ponder, verse five, she doesn't ponder the path of life. And that is what the father is encouraging his his son to do in all of these chapters. He wants his son to ponder and consider the path of life and righteousness according to the Lord and to avoid paths that lead to death and shame and pain and regret. So, uh, the forbidden woman is brought up again. Um, and we, we met her earlier, if you were here this week, we met her in Proverbs chapter 2. That was her introduction. Remember that wisdom would save the son from evil associations, from wicked men. And in Proverbs 2, wisdom, discretion, understanding will preserve the son from uh, the forbidden woman. So the next minute or so or two is review if you were here. But I want to say it again. Who is this forbidden woman or adulterous woman? And let me just say the importance that the father sees this relationship. There's about 65 verses in Proverbs that are devoted to her, even more than Lady Wisdom. We learn about the forbidden woman more than we even hear about Lady Wisdom, which I think tells us that the father sees this relationship as one of the greatest dangers for his son, for the health of his life. And so, uh, again, though, uh, I want to say this, especially for the women in here that are reading, going, wait a minute, why is it a forbidden woman? (laughs) Why is it that women are considered in the Bible here a sexual predator or or a dangerous person? We know in our culture that's not always the case. In fact, what about the forbidden men? And it can be applied that way. Remember, Proverbs uses concreteness, a specific uh, relationship or situation or person to teach a truth that has broad application, If you remember, I talked about concreteness when he said, don't use dishonest scales or inaccurate weights. You know, those are an abomination to God um, teaching us to be honest in the workplace. But for those of us that don't use scales and weights in our workplace, we take that concrete example and we apply it to our own situation to say, what does it look like to deal honestly in in our business dealings? And so women, as you read this, this is a father speaking to his daughter. You apply it to your own situation, warning you against the forbidden man or any person that would seek to pull you away from the person you are married to. Um, So it is applied. Uh, Women readers transform the language to suit their context and their situation. We do this in the book of Proverbs Listen, there are many, many sexual dangers. Maybe it's not a forbidden woman. Dangers that exist for men, women, single or married. There are temptations to enjoy sex before marriage. Uh, there are temptations to, uh, to enjoy sex outside of your marriage. There are temptations towards same-sex behavior There are temptations towards pornography and lust, and these things are are twisting God's good gift. And so we stand against them, and we read this throughout the scriptures. All of those behaviors are are outside of God's good intent, God's good plan. And so we appropriately apply this proverb to our own situation. A bit more of a review, who is this forbidden woman that we read about quite often uh, in Proverbs? Proverbs. Um, she's referred to as the adulterous woman, the immoral woman, the wayward wife. The literal word used is that she is the stranger, the strange woman, or the um, the foreigner, the foreign woman. We talked about that before. It's not that she. It's not about her ethnicity or her race. It's not that she's outside. In fact, we think she's probably an Israelite um, who makes sacrifices to God based on some of these other verses in Proverbs. But by referring to this woman as strange or foreign, he's saying that she is a stranger to his to his son's marriage covenant. She's an outsider. She's a foreigner. He's not married to her. So so he is a stranger to her. She is unauthorized. Her body and her heart are out of bounds for the son. Why? Because the son is not married to her. An outsider. We learn more about her. Verse 3, her, uh, her lip, the lips of a forbidden woman, they drip honey. They're sweet. Her speech is smooth, smoother than oil. Her words are enticing. The things that we say, um, at, at women, maybe it's the forbidden man, and the things that he's saying and luring you with are enticing. But in the end, oops, but in the end, that this is the whole point of Proverbs right here, right? You know, it, that, that we consider the end. Where is this relationship going to end up? In the end, she's bitter as wormwood. We don't exactly know what wormwood is. It's probably a poisonous plant. Um, other translations might say bitter as gall. Uh, it's definitely the opposite of honey, <laughs> Whatever it is, I like, go, okay, well, uh, it sets it. Wormwood is, is, is different than honey. It, it promised sweetness, but it delivered bitterness. She's sharp. Her, her speech is smooth, but she is sharp. She cuts. She cuts deep. Relationship, out-of-bounds relationships, romantic relationships, seem like they're going to be awesome, and they promise so much, but they deliver death, and they cut. Not just you, they they cut uh, your family and and your spouse if you're married. Her feet go down to death, her steps, her path, remember that's one of the big metaphors in Proverbs, is the path, the course that you're going to take. Her path leads down to the grave, to Sheol or the grave, they lead down to death. She doesn't ponder the ways of life. Think before stepping onto that path is what the father is saying. Son, don't go there. Sexual temptation, pornography, sex that's out of bounds, like the immoral woman, it's always speaking. It's always promising with its smooth speech. But it's promising something it will never deliver. Sex outside of marriage or pornography may appear sweet, an adulterous relationship, but in the end it is bitter, it cuts deep, and its feet lead to the grave. And so if we have an ounce of discretion, an ounce of wisdom, we will consider that. And listen, we learn in Proverbs that we are, we are captain of our own ship. We can never just say, oh, but the temptation was just too great. You know, I couldn't turn down that offer. Yes, you, you can. And so the instruction, as we move to, the next, to verse seven, the instruction of the father is this, run. <laughs> run, forest, run. Just run away is what he says. Don't go near, listen to the father. And you can almost, can you, you, you can almost hear the, the father in his, his voice. He's pleading. He, he, he's he's uh, so serious about this. He's so invested, he's so emotional about it. He says in verse seven, and now, O sons, listen to me. That's kind of interesting because now it's plural. It's like, not just my one son, all my children, everybody, all of us. And now, oh sons, listen to me. Verse seven, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Women, keep your way far from him. The forbidden man, the adulterous man, the strange man, the one who's a stranger to your marriage covenant. Do not go near the door of his house. Don't hit her up on the phone. What up? <laughs> you know, hey, just thought I'd kind of cruise by the neighborhood, see what's happening. You know what you're looking for. Don't go there. Verse 9, it, you know, keep your way far from her. Verse 9, lest you give your honor to others. This is what it's going to cost you. Adulterous relationships your honor, and your years to the merciless. Verse 10, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors, your toils, your work go to the house of a foreigner. Meaning you're gonna have to pay that money out to other people. Verse 11, it gets worse. And at the end of your life, at the end of your life, you groan. That's not a good thing. That's anguish. You groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline (laughs) and my heart despised reproof. Verse 13, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation, meaning that this sin, this course of path, uh, this path of, uh, of life it is public it's not just something private that that no one's ever going to find out i put in this my bible it, tragedy that is what the father is saying it is tragic to go outside of god's good design adultery and sexual sin come with great cost it costs our honor it costs our years or our dignity our strength and our wealth, and our labors, and and what we're working for will be going to someone else. And that's still today. Do you know that an adulterous relationship will end up costing you in so many ways, even financially? In 2018, in North Carolina, a man was awarded $8.8 million from the the man who was having an adulterous affair with his wife. $8.8 million dollars. Um, In fact, it was called, they either call it alienation of affection or criminal conversation. That's what it is. To have an affair is criminal conversation. I'm like, yeah, because it was naked conversation, right? It's like conversation that's not supposed to be happening. You know, this is a big loss. And all of this is public. You can't keep this private. And and not to mention, so the father is speaking to the son's own self-interest, but not to mention that the pain that a, an adulterous relationship will bring upon his spouse, her spouse, or, or their kids, their parents. We're walking through this in my church right now, and I know we're not the only church. That because of adultery and the pain and that, that sometimes that leads towards divorce, and the kids are wrecked. And though they are not guilty of their parents' sin, they will, it affects them, and they have to walk through that. If only we would use discretion and we would think before stepping in or be being persuaded by this, this smooth speech. Now, listen, for all of us in here who have sinned sexually, whether it's promiscuousness or we've been unfaithful, there is healing. It is not the end, there is forgiveness. We read the scriptures, there is hope. There is redemption, but not if we continue on that crooked path. It takes repentance. It takes confession. It takes bringing those actions into the light. God takes our mess, and he can bring something beautiful out of it. And we have so many testimonies and so many marriages that can speak to that that have gone through difficulty and yet God has healed them, even from the sin of infidelity and faithfulness. There is hope. It's not the end. It's not over. But anything the scripture calls us to is to get off that crooked path immediately. And though our sin runs deep, God's grace always runs deeper. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message of Jesus Christ. So the father told the son, run, run away. Now in the next section, he's going to tell his son to run, but not run away from. He's going to tell him who to run toward. Now, uh, before we get to verse 15, there's a shift now. We're going to kind of leave the the forbidden woman, and and there's a different shift, and it's beautiful. In fact, some of these words that that we're going to read, I've adopted into my own rule of life, a rule of life that I've taken from Proverbs 5. Um, and, uh, and, and the father's going to teach his son about the joys of romantic faithfulness to his spouse, to the one that he is married to within the bounds of marriage. Now we might need to turn on the AC in here cause it's going to get a little steamy okay? Uh, they're, they're, and that's the, the Bible's not, it's unashamed about the beauty of romance. And let me give you a clue, because I need this kind of clue when it comes to poetic metaphor. Um, there's going to be a lot of talk about water in the next few verses. And water is a metaphor for the romantic behavior between a husband and his wife. Water is a metaphor for the sexual relationship within the covenant of marriage, Okay? Here we go. Proverbs, we all did. I didn't have you guys sign waivers before you came in here. I didn't check ages. It's okay. My, my Bible professors told me we couldn't read verses like this until we were 30 years old. He was joking. Uh, okay, he says, my son, drink water from your own cistern. A cistern is a container for storing water. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. A well is replenished by an underground source. Verse 16, should your springs, you know, your waters, should they be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets, in the public areas? Verse 17, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. The father calls his son to seek fulfillment and sexual intimacy with his own wife. Look at the four times in here. Um, so we see the issue of water four times, though. We see this drink water from your own cistern, your own well, your springs. Let them be for yourself. There's this th- this um, these are these belong to him. Right. So we learn here that the father's son is either married or he's anticipating marriage. He's either married or he's anticipating marriage. And the father is pointing him toward his spouse or his future spouse. So I think that probably applies to just about everyone in here, either married or maybe anticipating marriage. Drink water from your own cistern, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Drink water from your own well, if you know what I mean. Don't drink water from your neighbor's well or from your neighbor's wife. You have your own well. So quench your thirst from water that belongs to you. And here in these verses, we learn the power of marriage is found in its exclusivity. Exclusivity is just a a bigger word for exclusive. Marriage is an an exclusive relationship, right? Right? Um, Hebrews 13, four in the new Testament, let me just read it to you. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Each one of us has a marriage bed, whether we are married or not, we have a marriage bed that is to be kept Pure. that that no forbidden man or forbidden woman gets to come in there, only the person that we have entered into a marriage covenant with. Marriage is an exclusive relationship. No one else will be invited into the bedroom of a wife and her husband. No one else will share the delights of each other's body. They are reserved only for one another. And what freedom and what security this brings to a husband and a wife. To know that that in marriage, uh, that when Annette and I got married on January 13th, 1996, I always have to make sure I know that date. Never forget the date of your marriage. Well, we stood there. We we're 22 years old. And we said, uh, you know, out of 8 billion people in the world, I choose you. And she said, out of 8 billion people in the world, I choose you and no one else. No one else is going to share each other the way that we will. That is an exclusive relationship. And it doesn't mean that we, we throw pocket sand at everybody else and we kick other people when we say we forsake all others. It means that no one else will, will enter and, and come between us. And there is power there. And so the father asks a rhetorical question in verse 16. Rhetorical meaning, you know, I don't really need a a specific answer. Should your springs be scattered abroad? You know, those waters that belong to you, should they be scattered abroad? Should your streams of water overflow into the streets for strangers? You see, the son's wife, does not belong to strangers, she belongs to him. And the reverse is true. The son's body does not belong to that forbidden woman. It doesn't belong to strangers outside of his marriage covenant. His body belongs to his wife. And so the father is appealing to his son's appropriate jealousy for his wife by imagining, son, how would you feel if she was sharing the, her well or the, the streams of water with your neighbor? And that's a crushing thought for the son. No way. And this is to embolden the son to be faithful to his own wife just as he wants her to be faithful to him. And so the answer in verse 17, should this water, you know, be public? No way. This is my interpretation. No way. No way, let them, let these waters be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Now, let me tell you, you're like, wait a minute. It Doesn't the Bible say we should share water with, with strangers and people who are thirsty? Yes, but not this water, <laughs> right? Right, not this. This is not to be shared with others, And when it says, let them be for yourself alone, this is not seen as like a right of possession, but rather a call to exclusive partnership. See 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4, that their bodies belong to one another because they are giving themselves to one another. That's what marriage is. It's not me taking you just as my wife, but I am giving myself to you as your husband. And you are giving yourself to me as my wife. We belong to each other. Anytime I do a, a wedding, I like doing the declaration of consent, you know, where they're, they're here, you know, they're all dressed up. But I, I, I ask each one of them, have you, I ask the groom, the husband, uh, the, the man becoming a husband, have you come here freely and without reservation to give yourself to this woman fully? And I like them to say, well, I do (laughs) rather than "No, I've been pressured to be here. I really don't want to be here. Know that this is their consent. And I ask her to the woman, do you come here freely and without reservation to give yourself to this man in marriage, lifelong marriage? And she says, I do. They are offering themselves and that is beauty and that is a dangerous relationship. That's why we say that marriage is not to be entered into haphazardly, but reverently with gratitude for the past. Uh, and entered into with the wisdom of friends and others, and that's why I think we need to summer and winter together before entering into marriage, and I don't mean just 365 days. I mean, we need to spend enough time uh, to see each other at their best, and you need to see each other at your worst and say, and I still want to give myself to you. Uh, and that's why that, that time of, of dating and, and and that we have, we don't really see that so much in the scriptures, but that is so important and that you listen to the wisdom and the counsel of others and what they have to say about how they see your relationship. That's why you need to get to know the name of the person you're going to marry, not the name they tell you, but the name they show you. If they are generous, if they are considerate, if they are humble, And then the father continues and he gives a blessing from the father to his son. He says to his son, Let your, this is verse 18, let your fountain be blessed. Let these waters of romance between your spouse or your anticipated spouse, let your fountain be blessed. Be joyful and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Women, Uh, If this is a father speaking to his daughter, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the husband of your youth. Verse 19, he says to his son, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, which the literal translation is a female mountain goat, which doesn't really translate well into English. A deer, a mountain goat. He says, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Let her body, and I emphasize the word her. Her the one that you have given yourself to your spouse let her body fill you with delight no one else's body not not some body on the internet or or pictures or thoughts of someone's no let her body fill you with delight at all times he says be intoxicated always in her love be intoxicated verse 20 why should you be intoxicated my son With a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Why? That's foolishness. It's absurd. Rejoice in your own spouse, find your joy and delight in him or in her. Be enraptured with, your, with her love. Does anybody, if you have a different Bible, uh, I'm reading out of the ESV, when it says be intoxicated, verse 19, the second part, be intoxicated always in her love. Anybody else have a different phrase or word that's used? Just shout it out. Loving. Be loving. Uh, uh, say that again. Be enraptured. What a great word. Be enraptured, caught up. The word rapture, we use to be caught up be enraptured, be caught up only in the love of your spouse. Is there another word? Captivated, ravished. Is that a King James Version? Maybe? ASV. ASV. The King James Version says, be thou ravished always in her love. That's worth buying a King James Bible right there. That's beautiful. What does yours say? Be lost. All these words and be lost in the love of your spouse. And the literal word here is intoxicated, which means be led astray in her love. It is the only time with the, with the, the love of the, the spouse that you've entered into lifelong marriage. Uh, and this is the only time, you guys, I've read the Bible through a number of times, the only time where the Bible encourages you or commands you to be intoxicated. Only in the love of your spouse, not with drink, not with substances or other things. Be intoxicated by the love of your spouse. You tell me that the Bible has a negative view of sex, it has a high view, a high view of marriage and where it belongs within the bounds of marriage. Love making is good. Sex is not shameful, it is sacred meaning it is not for public consumption. Don't buy the lie that we think that sex or or even this desire for sex is not shameful. It is actually a part of how God created us. It is God's good gift and we need his help to steward that desire in ways that are holy and honorable. I made a foolish prayer. I remember when I was a teenager and I was really striving for holiness and, and even in my mind, against lust. And and man, I, I lost the battle tons of times, right? Uh, and, and I remember eventually saying to God, God, would you just take these desires away from me? Take these away from me. And I thought, oh dear Lord, what am I asking? No, God has given me these. So my prayers changed. God, help me steward these. Help me steward these desires in ways that are holy and honorable. Lord, Because these are a gift. And and, and all of sin, our enemy always has to take God's good gift and then twist it and distort it. But at the core, sex is a good gift that God has given a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And and that's why our bodies and how we, we dress, it's not because our bodies are shameful. We don't cover up our body because our body is shameful. No, my body is sacred. And it's not for public consumption. And so therefore it is reserved to the, for the one that, that I belong to. The Bible does not discourage sex. It puts it in its proper place and context. And that is within the bounds of a husband and wife who have entered into the covenant of marriage before God and before others. And God's high view of sex is on display in Proverbs 5. Do you ever hear this song being played? You know, is this what we sing about? Uh, Is this what we hear about and what we see on TikTok or on YouTube or in movies or magazines? We need to sing this song to our kids. We need to sing it to our grandkids. We need to display the power of exclusive relationship with our spouse to others. And notice the motivation that the father is telling the son. Uh, the motivation is pleasure. He says, take pleasure in your own marriage. He's not saying, son, you know, don't, don't have this relationship with this forbidden woman because you need to have babies with your wife. You know, it, it's not about, uh, someone said, it's not, ple- it's not, um, it's pleasure. It's not progeny. It, it's, it's, uh, it's delight. It, it's not descendants, There's nothing talking about having kids here. Having kids is a great product of of the sexual relationship, but here it's about pleasure and delight because that is God's good gift. In light of your own marriage, all of us here, and for our singles in the room, if you want God's best for your love life and you trust his way over the ways of the world, then, then we, you respond to this question in verse 20 that the Father asks, why should you be intoxicated with a forbidden woman? Why should you be intoxicated and led astray by a forbidden man? And why would you embrace the bosom of an adulteress or an adulterer in view of the delights to be found in one's marriage? Adultery is absurd, and it's painful, and it doesn't deliver what it promises. So, here's my encouragement, be intoxicated with the right person, not the wrong one. Be intoxicated with the right person, not the wrong one. And so for those of us in marriage, and for those of us anticipating marriage, all your romantic energy belongs to your spouse and no one else. Your sexual behavior is to be limited. It is to be contained within the covenant of marriage. It is not to be spread around to anyone in the streets, uh, anyone who you just have consent with. No, that's not the, the rule for romantic behavior. It must be, our romantic energy must be confined, restricted, and limited. Are those popular words in our culture today? Restricted, confined, and limited to marriage. And here's my illustration. Uh, I told you I commute as much as I can to to church and to work. I live seven miles from our church, um, and I told you I'm not a cyclist. I'm a commuter. I I don't own spandex yet. Uh, That's what a cyclist is. I'm, I'm in my jeans and tennis shoes, but I'll be there soon in spandex they're just so comfortable and practical. Um, in doing this, though, uh, I don't know if RW is here. I met RW, and he's a cyclist. And, uh, uh, but listen, I'm getting my share of flat tires. In fact, quite a, quite a few this month. And and so I have to replace my inner tube or repair my inner tube quite a bit. Now, when air is contained within my inner tube, right? You guys understand how a tire works, right? When air is contained in my inner tube, it is confined and it is sealed in its rightful place. And when it is, my bike rolls. It works. It functions the way it was designed to. But when my inner tube is pierced or it's punctured by thorn or a glass or nail, The air, which is supposed to be contained and confined and restricted, is no longer contained. And now that air spills out where it doesn't belong. And now my bike doesn't function the way it was designed. And so I tell you, these boundaries that God has created, they are good. And this confinement of sex within marriage is life. Romantic exclusivity in marriage is powerful, and it helps the marriage function the way it's designed, it helps the marriage roll. Sex is like fire, and if I were to ask you, is fire good or evil? And you'd say yes. That when fire, when our fire is in our fireplace, when it's in the con- confines of where it belongs, fire is life. It is warmth. It is light. It is comfort. But when that fire is outside of its bounds, it is destructive and it is deadly because it is so powerful. And you hear the father urging his son saying, this good gift is powerful. So keep it where it belongs. Let me push this this inner tube illustration just one step further. Uh, A while back, I uh, replaced a tire on one of our bikes, a tire that had been working perfectly for years, but I wanted to add an extra layer, a thorn blocker within the tire. And so when I pulled out this tube, I was delighted to see that this perfectly working inner tube sported a few patches in various places for years. I've been, we've been riding on this tire and it's doing its job and it's functioning. But these patches indicated that there were breaches or wounds from its past. But those wounds had been patched. Those wounds had been sealed and healed. Those wounds had been addressed and confessed and attended to, and its functionality is fully restored. What a beautiful picture, because that's all of our lives, isn't it? That, That when we have sinned sexually, and we think, then I have no hope of ever experiencing God's best, and I think that's a lie. I think many of us in here and many people we talk to in church would tell you that God has brought healing in their life and their marriage is now functioning the way it was designed, even though there are patches and there are marks of wounds from the past. There is forgiveness from adultery. There is forgiveness and healing from addiction and infidelity. And that is the beauty of the grace that God gives And so let me go back to Proverbs 5. Who is responsible? Can I just ask this question? Who is responsible? In Proverbs 5, the father speaking to the son, who is responsible for romantic faithfulness in marriage? It's the son. Even though the father talks, uh, he gives a lot of description about the immoral woman, the forbidden woman. Notice how the father doesn't speak to her directly, does he? The father doesn't have any words for the forbidden woman. It's understood that her ways are evil. Her words are deceptive. She has no regard for the sacredness of sex within marriage, but she's not the intended audience for his instruction. The father doesn't try to correct her or her evil ways. I read a story about a mom who got onto her son's Facebook or social media account, and she was just appalled at all the pictures that his female friends had posted and sent. And so she saw it her job to direct message each one of those girls and tell them they need to put some clothes on. <laughs> I'm thinking, mom, you have a long <laughs> you know, way ahead of you. But maybe her, what if she poured that energy into teaching her son? It's not about going telling everybody, hey, stop wearing that, stop wearing that, stop doing that, stop saying that to my son. We, te- we teach our, our children. The father speaks to the son, his child. And so in Proverbs 5, it is the son's responsibility to avoid the forbidden woman. Or with concreteness here, it is the daughter's responsibility to avoid the forbidden man, the one who is enticing her into his bed. The son cannot blame the seductress for his infidelity. He can't say, but she seduced me. Did you hear what she said? Did you see what she was wearing? He can't say, I couldn't help myself. Whose responsibility is it to rejoice and be captivated and be intoxicated and be ever ravished with one's spouse? It is the son's responsibility. So I choose in my marriage, whose responsibility is it to be captivated with his spouse? It's my responsibility. So I choose to be intoxicated by the love of my spouse. I choose to be captivated by her love and her love alone. And I can't say to her, well, I'll be captivated if you're captivating. If you just be a little more intoxicating then I'll be intoxicated. No, no, it is a choice that I make. And that's why I told you, I've adopted this into my own rule of life. Like 10 things, 12 things I'm about, uh, reading God's word, praying to him. And I choose to rejoice in the wife of my youth and to be ever intoxicated with her love and her love alone. That is a choice we make. And so I aim to reserve all my romantic energy and that belongs to my spouse. All of my romantic energy, that's a euphemism. I think you can understand anything. All my flirting, all my flowers, all my love notes belong to one person. All my inappropriate twerking in the living room belongs to one lucky gal, right? <laughs> All of that is not to be spread or just a little here, a little wink here. No, no, no. What if all of that? And when I see beauty in this world, and there is beauty, people are beautiful. And when I see beauty, that is the trigger to remind me of the beauty of my wife. And that's where my mind needs to go. And if I'm a single man, I reserve that and say, Lord, I see beauty all around me and I understand your your creative intent for marriage. And so, Lord, I look forward toward that time when maybe I might have a spouse. God, help me to steward those things in ways that are holy and honorable. And what if my wife, and I believe she is, she reserves all of her romantic energy for, for me? It's limited, it's confined, it's restricted. And some people would say, oh, how sad. How sad that you only have one person to pour all that romantic energy into. And I think you don't know what you're missing. That is God's good design, that we would steer all of that romantic energy toward The one that we are married. We are not missing out on a thing. And when a husband and a wife choose to rejoice in each other, and when they are enraptured, intoxicated by each other's love, they drown out the honey-laced speech of those who seek to seduce them. I find that my ears are not as attentive to anyone or anything that would seek to be pulling my desires and attentions and affections away from the the one that I uh, belong to. Sexual sin is foolish. And in the end, it brings only pain to you and your family. But the father ends his teaching to his son with the most important reason of all to avoid sexual sin. Because each one of us answers unto God. And how we conduct ourselves is really unto the Lord. And so this is the conclusion of, um, oh, I'm sorry, God can and will patch what we submit to him. I'm sorry I didn't emphasize that earlier. But in the final words, oh, I didn't, oh, you guys, I missed out on all my slides. It's okay. All right. Set them anyway. Uh, here's the last three verses in Proverbs 5. He says to his son, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Remember, the the forbidden woman, she doesn't ponder the path of life, but God ponders all of our paths, all of them. Verse 22, the iniquities, the sins of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Held fast, that's wedding language. When you hold fast to your spouse, you cling, your are one flesh. But instead, the, the sinful, wicked man, he's clinging to his sin, and he's, and, he, and he's trapped in them. Verse 23, he dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. That's not an accident, led astray. What, what is led astray? What's the word used in Proverbs 5, 19? Intoxicated but he talks about but the man who's wicked and commits adultery he is intoxicated he is led astray by his own sin don't be led astray by sin be led astray by the love of your spouse be intoxicated with her so the father reminds his son that nothing is hidden from god's sight nothing and the son might think well i can get away with a little hanky panky maybe a little flirting maybe a little pornography Within measure, maybe a little fantasy on the side won't hurt anyone who's going to find out. And I'm reminded by uh, Joseph's words, Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph had a problem that I suffer with, and I think a few of you do as well. We read in Genesis 39 now, Joseph was well built and handsome. It's a curse, you guys, that some of us just have to. He was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, took notice of Joseph, and she said, Come to bed with me. Real subtle, right? Come to bed with me. Joseph declined, and he said these words, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Not just just your husband or sin against my family. How could I do this and sin against God? god we understand that all of our actions are before the lord i'll i'll wrap up with with these words um number one marriage is worth fighting for if there's a a a lie that we sometimes we have in our christian subcultures we say well if you do if you wait till marriage and you reserve all of that 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 sex and marriage is going to be easy and, and on cruise control and that is not true It takes work and there is difficulty there. So I'm sorry if we've kind of uh, uh, proposed this lie to you that, oh, it's just going to be easy and isn't going to take work. It does take work and we fight for this. And so therefore, and when we are married, we continue to fight for our marriage. So I will fight for my marriage, and I fight for the marriages in our church and for you. And I ask people like you and others to fight for my marriage. You know that when you get married and you have these attendants, these groomsmen and bridesmaids, and, and it's a pretty picture, but those groomsmen and bridesmaids are not just there for cake and punch, right? Right? You've hopefully selected them because these are men and women who are for you and they're going to push. They're going to continue all in life, not just at the wedding. They're going to push the the wife toward her husband and they're going to push the husband toward his wife and they're almost going to stand guard. I see those attendants as saying, we're going to protect this marriage. And if we see somebody coming in to try to divide them, no, we're going to we're going to protect. And we need that in a community. That we'd be protecting and speaking truth to one another. So we fight, so we stand against anyone or anything that seeks to drive a wedge between a husband and his wife. You stand for the marriages of your friends and in your church, you pray for them. And because we understand that we all have desires that are not to be fulfilled just because you have that desire even if it is a same-sex desire we all have desires that are not to be fulfilled and we're going to need to steward that in ways that are holy and honorable unto the lord according to his word and so we collectively champion god's intended design for romance meaning that we will stand against hookup culture you know hookup culture where it just says, hey, you're hot, I'm hot, you consent, I consent, let's have sex. Let's enjoy this. That's hookup culture, even within our Christian communities. And so I'm gonna push consent one more time because I believe consent is important in marriage as well. Consent is important, but here's the deal. If you say, you're hot, I'm hot, you consent, I consent, I ask, oh, you need one more person's consent. Does God consent to this sexual relationship? Hey, do you, have you gotten his consent? Have you been willing to stand before God and others and say, out of 8 billion people in the world, it's you? We will, by the strength of the Holy Spirit within us, we will reserve sex for marriage. And therefore, we will not live together with our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our fiance until we are joined in marriage before God and others. And this is something big in my church and in our town as well. And there's tons of practical reasons why people might say, well, we're going to live together before we've entered into that covenant. And so we, we this is what I said to my church and, and our, our people about a month ago. I said, if you're a follower of Christ and you're cohabitating with your romantic partner, your pastors and your elders in your church are here to help you take steps of obedience, Obedience to God's good commands today, not next year, today. How can we help you take a step of obedience? And there's been couples that have responded to that, and there's been couples that I've had conversations with, and they've left the church and they feel judged by me, and they've left. And then we have other couples. One guy, uh, a little while ago, he, had been, uh, he and his girlfriend were living together. Then they got engaged, and I didn't realize they were leaders in my youth ministry. I realized I need to ask questions like that earlier before I put people in leadership. And when we talked to them about it, he moved into his friend's place and slept on the couch for nine months during engagement. And I know that was difficult, that was uncomfortable. But He said, you know what? We want to we take a step of obedience and, and do this. I know another man that, that pitched a tent in his backyard. He already had kids with his girlfriend. They were together. They decided to get married. They were believers. And so he pitched his tent in his backyard until they are married. And I think you explain that. You tell your kids why. You say, you know what? I want you to know that I respect your mom. And we, we, we step too far forward. And I just think obedience is always best. It's not going to be easy. Marriage is worth fighting for. Marriage is worth waiting for. It is worth waiting for. Do you want God's best for your love life? It will take patience and trust and discipline. And listen, if you are waiting towards marriage, and I know and I remember being there in so much anguish toward that um, and even trying to find someone, you know, uh, that, that we might pair it with, I want to tell you, life doesn't start when you meet that person. God has good work for you today. Take advantage of the advantages of singleness. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. If you find yourself and you are single and you have that gift, there are advantages to that. So lean into those advantages. If you are in marriage, then take advantage of the advantages of marriage that you might bring glory to God where you find yourself today. Marriage is worth fighting for, marriage is worth waiting for, and marriage is worth healing for. So let us bring our sins and our wounds to God, that he might patch us, that he might restore us, that he might lead us towards his best for our love life. And may we each and every day rejoice in our spouses. May we be ever captivated, ever intoxicated, and ever ravished by their love and their love alone. Father, you are the giver of good gifts. Lord, would you give us strength and wisdom, Father, to walk in your ways. I pray for marriages. I've met people that have been married this 40 years, 50 years here this week at Hume. And Lord, never do they give up being ravished with each other's love. Never do they they cease reserving all their romantic energy for their spouse. And Lord, I pray for our our young ones. I pray for our singles. Maybe it's after marriage. Maybe it's widowed. Maybe it's divorced. Lord, that we would steward our sexuality in ways that honor you according to your word, God. I pray that we would trust you and that your way is best. And Father, I pray that we would sing your song in our churches. We We would be singing. Our marriages would be playing that tune for others to see. I pray for our world right now, Lord, that thinks they understand uh, this gift of sex, Lord, that we might champion your ways. We love you. We thank you for Proverbs 5 and the enjoyment that you have given us in marriage. In Jesus' name, amen.